Welcome to Theological Equipping Class. If you're a visitor, this is not our main service. That's at 1030. What we do before services is uh, we do some theology. We dig deep into different topics into the Bible that we typically might not get to do that uh, in the service as we're walking line by line through the text. And so this semester, we've been going over three big doctrines. We've gone over the doctrine of sin. We've gone over the doctrine of humanity. And now we are talking about, here's your fancy $5 term, soteriology. All right, soteria in Greek means salvation. A soter is a savior in Greek, and so soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. So we saw that God made mankind good, uh, but mankind fell, and now mankind is born sinful and evil because of sin. We're in the line of Adam, and God's solution to that, the way that God fixes what's gone wrong in the world is through making covenants, all right? So let me just say this really, really um, important point. God owes us nothing. He owes mankind no salvation. We don't have a claim upon God. It's not like after mankind falls and sins, we can just go before God and say, hey, I want to be back in a friendship with you, and that's cool, okay? There has been a fundamental rift and a fundamental divide between the divine and the human. And so uh, what God does, his solution to that is to make promises. His solution to that is to enter into relationships with mankind, and we call these relationships covenants. We call these relationships covenants. And there are six big ones. There's a bunch of them in the Bible. In fact, every time someone gets married, that's a covenant. If they sell land, that's a covenant. But there are six really, really big ones in the, New Te- or in the Bible, including the New Testament. So the Adamic, right, the, the covenant made with Adam, which is kind of an intrinsic covenant. The word covenant's not used, but there, is this, there are these stipulations. If you do this, you will live. If you eat of this tree and rebel against me, you will die, etc. The Noahic, sometimes called Noahide, which sounds weird, so I'm going to keep calling it Noahic, uh, that Jeff talked about last week, Noah is seen as kind of a second Adam, whereas Adam was somebody who these covenant stipulations were made with Adam. He was naked. He was a gardener. He disobeyed. The same thing kind of happens with Noah. Noah's kind of a second Adam. He's even given the same commission as Adam, be fruitful and multiply, but he also gets naked and he's a gardener. He, he's, he uh, grows grapes and he gets drunk with wine and he disobeys as well. And then today we're going to get into the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, my only promise to you is that I will not sing the Father Abraham song, uh, at least in its entirety. So that'll be today, the Father Abraham who has many sons, and many sons has Father Abraham, and we'll learn about that today uh, in the Abrahamic covenant. Now, I will use the terms Abram and Abraham interchangeably, okay? So don't get mad and be like, well, his name was really Abram. I, I get it, okay? He, he switched, his name is Abram, which means exalted father, and after this promise that God makes to him, he renames him Abraham, which means father of a multitude, because that's specifically what the promise is, that through your seed, all the nations will be blessed, all right? All the nations will be blessed. And then eventually we'll have three more. We'll talk about the Mosaic, the Davidic, and then the New Covenant, which is really kind of the fulfillment of all these other covenants, okay? It really is the fulfillment of all these covenants. None of these covenants are just about these people. They always culminate in Christ. He is the greater and last Adam. He is the greater Noah. He is the greater Moses, et cetera, et cetera. So here's where we are in the story of uh, the Bible thus far, okay? I've concluded it with six points here. The story starts with the infinite, all-powerful, Trinitarian God. There is only one God, but this one God is three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, all at the same time. And it is this God who is the true God. This is the God of Israel. This is the God of the Bible. This is the only God that exists, the Trinitarian God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Spirit. And this God creates everything for His glory. And you actually see all three members of the Trinity in creation. You have the Father. You have his word. He speaks things into being through his word. The New Testament calls Jesus that word. And you even see the spirit hovering over the waters, bringing peace out of chaos. And so this God creates everything, and he creates everything for his glory. Second step here. 
mankind was made to glorify God by subduing the earth and representing God well. But mankind failed to do that. Okay, that was step two. The greatest thing God made is not dogs or dolphins, although those are super awesome and they do great tricks. The greatest thing God made was humans. Okay. Number three here, God made a covenant with Adam to bless him if he obeyed, but judge him if he disobeyed. Okay? So God was already gracious. He creates the man. He gives him value. He creates woman. She has value. Uh, they're, they're there. The garden has everything that they need. There's no problems, and they're given one command. Do not eat of this tree. And the one command they're told not to do is exactly what they do. They're tempted by the serpent. They eat of the tree, and everything becomes broken. What is the big deal with them eating of the tree? It's not just that they ate a piece of fruit. The big deal is, that's why the tree is called the, knowledge, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The idea there is instead of fearing God and letting him determine what's good, letting him determine what's right and wrong, they decide that they will be their own gods. They will determine what's right and wrong. They will reject God's wisdom and substitute it for their own. And what happens is they get condemnation. They get kicked out of the garden and everything becomes broken. Number four, Adam as an ambassador for humanity. That's important, by the way. It's not just about some naked guy in a garden thousands of years ago or whatever, as Jeff said, why should some naked guy eating fruit affect my life, which I thought was his direct quote, which I thought was hilarious. And uh, Adam is a representative for humanity. He is an ambassador before God for humanity. And so when an ambassador represents a nation and they do a bad job, People think bad things about everyone in the nation. So the same thing kind of happens with Adam. Adam, as an ambassador for humanity, rebelled against God, and the result was that all humanity would be born into sin and that brokenness would enter the world. If God is good, why is there evil in the world? And the answer is because we rejected him. The reason is because we walked away from him. We walked away from the source of all good and all joy and all life, and when you do that, you get the opposite of those things. You get death and sickness and demonic oppression, et cetera, et cetera. Number five here. By the way, I'm skipping some things in the story. I'm skipping, uh, you know, Babel, and I'm skipping uh, Cain and Abel and all these kind of things. But just as we're talking about covenants, I'm just trying to hit the, the highlights here. Number five, God judged the evil of mankind with the flood, but made a covenant with Noah, who was kind of like a second Adam. Noah and his family acted sinfully, showing that sin was still pervasive. You can take I was going to make some sort of phrase, like, you know how you can take the girl out of Texas, but you can't take the Texas out of the girl, something like that. I was going to say something about taking humanity out, but it didn't work with everybody getting killed with the flood, so I'm just going to move on. Number six. <clears throat> Number six, and this is where we are today. God makes a covenant with Abraham to bless all nations, meaning to fix what's gone wrong in the world. Let me give you a great quote by a theologian named N.T. Wright. Here's what he says. Abraham emerges within the structure of Genesis as the answer to the plight of all humankind. The line of disaster and the curse from Adam through Cain, through the flood, to Babel begins to be reversed when God calls Abraham and says, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Okay? Now, you really need to understand all of these covenants are important. All of these covenants will be repeated elsewhere in the Bible. All of these covenants are really essential to understanding the backbone of Scripture, to understanding the storyline of Scripture. But one of these covenants is going to get a lot of attention in the New Testament, a lot of attention in where we are in Romans, a lot of attention in Galatians, a lot of attention in Ephesians, etc. And that one is going to be the Abrahamic covenant. Who are the Jews? They are those related to Abraham. What is the deal with Old Testament Israel? What's the deal with all these commands given to the Jews? Why does the New Testament, Paul's constantly trying to say you're not saved by being a Jew, you're saved by trusting in Christ. What's the deal with the Jews? Well, the reason the Jews are important is because they are the line of Abraham, all right? When God comes to Abraham and says, through your seed, through your descendants, I'm going to send somebody who's going to fix what's broken in the world. I'm going to send somebody who is going to undo the evil that's been done. 
And he's going to come through this Jewish lineage, ultimately talking about Christ. That's through the Abrahamic covenant. So we're going to do a lot of reading in here today. So if you don't know how to read, that's okay, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But we're going to do a lot of reading. Uh, Let's start with these promises that God is going to make to Abraham, okay? This is Genesis 12, 1 through 9. I want to read this. If you've got a handout, you can read it there with me, meaning in your mind, not all out loud at the same time. That would take forever. Okay. The text says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I, and I will make you of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Pay attention to that. So Abraham went as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abraham took Sarai. She'll eventually be named uh, Sarah, which means princess, okay? Uh, Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions uh, that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to a place called Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and Ai, some people say I, some people say Ai, on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. Okay? Now, here's basically what's going on in the story. God creates everything for his glory. He creates mankind to represent him well, but instead of doing that, mankind dishonors God, rebels against God, does not bear his image well, but instead walks in rebellion, tries to be our own gods. God hates that. The essence of all sin is where you try to exalt yourself over God, and so what God does is he curses everything. All right, with Adam and Eve, everything becomes cursed. The ground now bears thorns and thistles, greatly increased as the woman's pain and childbearing. All the brokenness you see in the world comes because of human sin, and God's response to that is to go to this moon-worshiping pagan from a town called Ur named Abram and say, I'm going to select you. Me? I'm just this pagan. Yes, you. You're who I'm going to use. Do I get a say in this? No, I'm God. I do what I want and I elect people. And so God does that and selects Abram and says, through your descendants, with your wife, by the way, who's beyond childbearing years, through your descendants, I'm going to send somebody who's going to fix what's broken in the world. One of the things that we've been saying constantly as we've been talking about covenants, as we've been going through the book of Romans, as we've been saying this, God is not just the God of Israel. But rather, the God of Israel is the God of the whole world. This is why the Bible starts in Genesis 1 and not Genesis 12. It doesn't just start with Israel. It starts with God being over the whole world, in charge of everything. He uses Israel to bring a Messiah who will again bless the whole world. God is about redeeming the whole world. He's the God of the whole world, and he uses Israel as his vehicle through whom he sends a Messiah. He's not just about Israel. Now, what was promised in this text that we just read. There were four really big things that were promised in this text, okay? Let me, let me mention what they were. The first one was land, okay? The first one was land. In fact, I'm gonna put, I'm gonna categorize these four under, under three headings here. As always, I apologize for my handwriting. Uh, I had a very difficult childhood. That's why it looks that way. (laughs) Basically, there there are four things promised, but under three big headings. The three big headings are dwelling, dynasty, and dominion. But let me mention the four things that are promised. First of all, there's dwelling. There's land. There's a promise of land that you and your descendants will have this land, okay? The second thing promised is offspring. 
The second thing promised is offspring, that though you are old, though your wife is old, you guys will have a ton of kids. They will outnumber the stars of the sky, and they will outnumber the sand of the, on, the, on the seashore, that there would be offspring. That's the idea of dynasty. Also, there was this promise of reputation, that I will make your name great. People will know who you are. If someone curses you, I'll curse them. If they bless you, I'll bless them. So there's this idea of reputation, which is also linked to dynasty. And then lastly, there's using his seed to become a blessing to all nations, dominion. When God comes and reiterates this promise to Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, one of the things he says is that kings will come from your body. We talked about one of the central themes throughout all the scriptures, this idea of the kingdom of God, and that's kind of the idea that you get here. Abram, though you're pagan, I'm going to redeem you. You're going to follow me, and your people will be my people, and what's going to happen is I'm going to give you some land. I'm going to make your name great and give you a ton of kids, and one of your descendants is going to be a king. He's going to rule over the nations. He's going to fix what's gone wrong in the world. That's really the promise that's going on with the Abrahamic covenant. Dwelling, dynasty, and dominion. Okay? Dwelling, dynasty, and dominion. Now, I just want to say this because this is important. These things were never meant to culminate just on Israel. These things were never meant to culminate just on Israel. The New Testament is explicitly clear about this, that these things were meant to culminate in Christ, who is the true seed of Abraham. Okay? So the issue is not just the, the land promised to Israel, which is given in this text, but we've said this before that rather what's, what's going on here is that, uh, is that um, the world was supposed to look like Israel, which was supposed to look like Jerusalem, which was supposed to look like the temple, which was supposed to look like the Garden of Eden, which was supposed to look like heaven. That's kind of the idea, that Israel would be kind of a picture of what it would look like for the entire world to live under the reign of God. That was kind of the idea. In Israel, you were to have a righteous king. You were to have people following God's law. You were to be worshiping the one true God. There should be no idolatry. There should be no heresy. There should be no false religion. There should be no false doctrine. And as nations would come through Israel, which, by the way, was located in the middle of a bunch of these world superpowers, they would say, something's different about these people. Something's different about this culture. They walk in holiness. There's a joy about them. They seem to really love this one God. They can't see him. He's invisible and he's everywhere, but somehow his presence is especially felt near the temple, that Israel was kind of supposed to be a place where heaven and earth meet, where Israel was supposed to be a place where heaven and earth kissed, if you will. But it was never just about Israel. The author of Hebrews will make that clear, that Israel was meant to be a picture of believers inheriting the whole world. Same thing with dynasty and uh, with dominion. It was never just meant to be about Abram, but Abram would have a great, 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 great grandson who would be far more famous than Abraham, be far more famous than Abraham, and he would rule the nations with a rod of iron, and it would be Christ. So these things were never meant to just culminate on Israel. They were meant to culminate in God being king over the whole world and God ruling and reigning the whole world. God has always ruled and reigned. He's always been sovereign. But the hope in the prophetic literature of the Old Testament is that one day God will stomp out all opposition. God's sovereign over everything, but there are humans and demons who sin against him. One day he will stomp that out. He will get rid of the curse. He will stomp out his enemies, whether they're human or angelic, and everything will be like it was in Eden, but only better. Only better. You with me so far? A lot of Old Testament Jewishy stuff today. Okay, you've got to keep your thinking caps on. I want, to, I want you to see something that's done here in Genesis 15 where God kind of, uh, we're, so, so God has made promises in Genesis 12. Let's look at Genesis 15 where we're going to see this idea of cutting a covenant. During this, this uh, little series that we've been going through, as we've been talking about covenants, the phrase used most often in the ancient Near East for beginning a covenant is karat barit, okay? That means to cut a covenant. Why is it called that? Why isn't it just called making a covenant? 
Why isn't it called signing on the, bottom, the, the dotted line? Why isn't it called something like that? Why is it called cutting a covenant? Here's, here's where you're going to see why it's called that. Genesis 15, 7 through 18. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, meaning one on one side and one on the other. Okay? But he did not cut the birds in half. They're too small. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. What a random detail. You've got this important thing going on with this covenant being made, and it's like, oh, by the way, when the vultures came down to try to eat those, he's like, shoot, get out of here, birds. And he does that, and he tries to get rid of the birds. By the way, one of the reasons I think that you can trust the Bible is because it just includes elements that are realistic. If you're making up a religion, you don't add random weird details like that. Anyway, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Here's what's going on in the ancient Near East. This is a very foreign context to us. When you read this, you're like, what the heck is happening? Here's what's going on. In the ancient Near East, if you really, really wanted to promise to somebody, if you really wanted to swear to somebody, what you would do is you would cut animals and you would put half of their bodies over here and half of their bodies over there, and you would walk through those dead animals. Weird, okay? Why were you doing that? Because what that symbolized was this. If I break my promise, may I be cut in half. If I break my promise, may death happen to me. If I break my promise, may I be like one of these animals where you can separate me. I swear to you so hard that I'm not going to break my promise that if I do, you can kill me. And listen, God is promising with that type of strength. God is saying, if I break my promise, you can kill me. You can't kill God, which means he's going to keep his promise. But that's how strongly he promises. And by the way, if I can step away from this text and just say something pastoral, that's how strongly God has promised you the blessings in Christ. That's how strongly God has promised you forgiveness. That's how strongly he's promised you eternal life. That's how strongly he's promised uh, that he will never leave or forsake you, even though you're going through something difficult. That's how strongly God has promised. God is saying, I am so true to my word that if I fail, you can kill me. And you can't kill me, which means I'm going to be faithful to my word. What you have here is you have God promising as strongly as he can that he is going to be faithful to Abraham, that he's going to be faithful to Abraham, okay? Why is he represented as a smoking pot? Let me just say this real quick. Um, Don't think of God as like a big man. Yes, Jesus is truly God and truly human, but don't think of the Father or something as like a big human or something like that. He is not. He is infinitely different than us. He is everywhere at the same time. He is all-powerful. Don't think of him as a big man. You cannot represent God like that because God is uh, ineffable. He's mysterious. He's beyond our ability to fully comprehend. And so I think there's this simply this idea of God taking on this form as a smoking pot of fire or God as a consuming fire just so you don't think of him as like this big man or something like that. But that's, that's kind of the idea. So what's going on here is God has already promised, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you a bunch of children, and I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to fix the world through you. And here you have God saying, I swear it to you. 
I swear it to you. I am cutting a covenant. I am making a promise as strongly as I can make the promise. When I say something is going to happen, you can take it to the bank. That's what's going on in this text. Okay, now, what was the role of Abraham and his descendants, the Jews? What were the Jews meant to do? Okay, what were the Jews meant to do? I've mentioned a few things here, a few things I want you to see about Abraham and Israel that we're supposed to see. First of all, you are supposed to see the concept of election here. You're supposed to see the concept of election. Sometimes when we talk about election or reprobation or predestination, people get really upset because they don't like the idea that God is ultimately sovereign over salvation. One of the problems I have with that, other than the fact that the Bible is very clear on issues like predestination, is that we forget that election pervades the Bible, right? Why did God choose Adam instead of making some other person who would have obeyed? Uh, Why did God choose Noah and help him be righteous? Why did God choose Abram and call him Abraham? He was this moon-worshiping pagan. Couldn't he have chosen somebody better? Couldn't he have chosen a better nation than Israel? He says that to Israel. He says, I didn't choose you because you were the prettiest girl at the ball. I didn't choose you because you were bigger and better than the other nations. I chose you just because I decided to set my love on you. Why does he choose Isaac? Why does he choose uh, uh, Jacob? Why does he love Jacob and hate Esau? you, You see... You already believe in election, whether you're a Calvinist, Arminian, whether you do or don't like those terms, whether you're Reformed or not, God simply goes to sinners that owe him everything and that he owes nothing to, and he just says, I'm going to have mercy on you. I'm going to have mercy on you. All of humanity is rebelling. Adam rebels, Noah rebels, everybody else rebels. Here's a guy worshiping the moon. That's who I'm going to choose, and I'm going to redeem him, and I'm going to make him a great nation, and through him is going to come the Messiah. That's just how God works. All of God's working activity is 100% gracious. He does it all. He does it all. You see that here. You see the idea of election. Next, Israel was to be an example of what living under Yahweh's rule looked like. Israel was to be an example of what living under Yahweh's rule looked like, okay? Israel was meant to be a light to the nations, a city on a hill. When Jesus talks about that in the Sermon on the Mount, where does he get that imagery? He gets that imagery for what Israel was meant to be. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is the new Israel, giving his new commandments on top of the mountain, like Moses did in the Old Testament. And so Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. They were meant to be a city on a hill. Israel was supposed to look different than everybody else. So when you're reading in the Old Testament, you're like, what is the deal with all these weird rules? They can't eat bacon. That surely can't be from God. They have to wear these weird clothes. They have to do circumcision. They have to keep a one lazy day a week on a Saturday. What, what is the deal? Why, why does it look so weird when we read all these commands in the Old Testament? And the answer is because Israel was supposed to look different than the other nations. If you were traveling through Israel, you were supposed to say, these people are unlike every other people. They really love one God. Why don't they worship a bunch of gods like everyone else? They don't have idols because their God's invisible and he's everywhere. Why don't they have idols? Every other nation has idols. What are they bowing down to? Why do they do these things to their little boys when they're eight days old? That seems really strange. Why do they keep one lazy day? You see, in a lot of cultures, you would work every single day. You wouldn't take a day off. What is the deal? Why are they so concerned all day, every day with trying to walk in purity? And then it was supposed to hit you. Ah, because that's how holy, that's how mighty, that's how infinite their God is is that that is how holy he is. And these people can't meet it. This is why this God's provided a means of atonement where they can offer these different sacrifices and stuff to to show their contrition because that's how holy their God is. Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. Israel was both a spiritual and an ethnic people. Let me draw you a little little something, something. I know I'm an incredible artist, so you guys are really going to like this. It's really going to come out good and not something super weird. Okay, what's interesting with Israel is you have both an ethnic and you have both a spiritual side, OK? 
Okay, so let me say this. If somebody says that they're half Jewish, what do they mean? Yeah, one of their parents was Jewish. Exactly. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I'm half Christian. My mom was Christian. No, right? Because the Israel or being a Jew can be defined physically or spiritually. So let's draw a big circle. This will represent physical Israel. Okay? There is a sense in which God is in covenant with physical Israel. He's, a, he's in covenant with the nation of Israel. Every child who's male at eight days old is circumcised. They take on this covenantal sign that they're in relationship with God. Whether they end up being believers or not is irrelevant to whether or not they need to take on that sign. But within Israel, you have what I'm going to call spiritual Israel. Okay? So there's a sense in which you, being Jewish, you're God's people just generically because you're part of the nation of Israel. But several times in the Bible, God will say, wait a second, though. I'm looking for those who have heart circumcision. I'm looking for those who've not bowed the knee to Baal or to Baal. So there's a sense in which sometimes when we say Jew or Israel, we can mean physical Jew, physical Israel. And there is a sense in which they are generically in covenant with God. But you have to realize that just because somebody's born Jewish, they're not saved. You can be unfaithful and fall under God's wrath and be cut off from his people. So what God's really after is spiritual Israel. He's really after those who have a heart to love him, who repent of their sin, who trust him by faith alone, who uh, look forward to a coming Messiah, or if you're a Christian today, look back at a Messiah and look forward to his second coming. What's interesting about the church is in the church, you only have this. You only have spiritual Israel. We don't have this larger ethnic community. We don't have this logic racial community or something like that. It's just the people that truly love God. In the Old Testament, you could be in covenant with God, but really if you wanted to be a believer, you had to trust him. You had to repent. You had to love him. In the New Testament, there is only this inner circle that if you are linked to Christ, you are forgiven. You have the spirit. You are saved. There is no such thing as being linked to Christ in a binding covenant and not knowing him. I don't know what the heck that would mean. Okay? But that's kind of what you get here. You get this idea that Israel both is spiritual and an ethnic people. Israel was to be a kingdom of priests, a priestly kingdom or a kingly priestdom, okay? Israel was meant to do what Adam was meant to do, okay? Adam was kind of meant to be, to the rest of creation, this priest king. Adam's job was to say, God is super great, and so I'm going to subdue the earth for God's glory. I'm going to care for the animals. I'm going to make more people with Eve so that way there can be more glory given to God, etc. That's kind of what's going on. Israel is meant to be a kingdom of priests. They're meant to be a holy nation. Yes, they have priests. But the whole nation is meant to walk in a special amount of holiness. In the ancient Near East, you would have priests over temples, and that was their job to do religious stuff, and everyone else was just kind of normal slash pagan, okay? Israel wasn't to be like that. Though you had priests, everyone was to walk in holiness. Everyone was to love God. Everyone was to be obedient to his word, etc. And lastly, I think this is really important. Israel was to be the people through whom a Messiah would come. When it's promised to Abram, that in your seed all the nations will be blessed. That word seed in Hebrew is zerah. The Greek word is sperma. Let the reader understand. And uh, it is in the singular in Hebrew. And what the Apostle Paul is going to say is, yes, there is the promise that he's going to have a bunch of descendants, but God's focus in that promise is not just a bunch of Jews. His promise is that there would be one Jew in particular that would be the Adam that Adam should have been, that would be the Noah that Noah should have been, that would be the Abraham that Abraham should have been, that one would come who would redeem all nations, who would save people regardless of ethnicity, regardless of whether or not they are Jew and Gentile. Quick question for you. Did Israel succeed in being what they were supposed to be? Yes, eventually a Messiah came, but on all those other things I mentioned, did Israel succeed in being what they were made to be? They did not. 
okay? The example that we use all the time here at Parkway is the example of a Coast Guard. You have all humanity drowning in, in sin, all right? All humanity's out on the sea. Everyone's drowning. Our heads are going underwater. And so God says, I'll send in the Coast Guard, the Jews. And so the Coast Guard goes out, and they've got a big, like, Star of David on the side of their boat, and they're rocking in the waves, and they're like, we're going to be awesome. And then they get lost at sea, too, and they're drowning. And God is like, something has gone terribly wrong. If you want something done right, you've got to do it yourself. And he sends Christ, okay? Now, obviously, this is all part of God's plan. God's not reactionary. But that's kind of the story of Israel. Israel does the exact same things as the other nations. Other nations committed idolatry. Guess what Israel does? They commit idolatry. Other nations committed sexual immorality. Guess what Israel does? They commit sexual immorality. Other nations practice false religion. Guess what Israel does? They practice false religion. They burn incense they're not supposed to burn. They don't do the sacrifices the way they're supposed to, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? And Israel ends up falling into the same predicament as the rest of humanity because Israel is tainted by sin as well. Okay? Israel is tainted by sin as well. Because all people are linked to Adam, all people are born sinful and broken. And so regardless of what nation you live in, you can't overcome that. God has to overcome it for you. What he has to do is he has to take out your heart of stone and he has to give you a heart of flesh. Okay? He has to give you a heart of flesh. Now, what was the covenantal sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Now, one of the things we've talked about with covenants is typically covenants <clears throat> um, have some sort of accompanying sign. So if uh, when I married uh, my wife, Katie... There was a sign, a wedding ring. That was kind of the sign of the covenant, okay? Uh, she lost it playing water volleyball, and we fought a lot about that, but, uh, but that was the sign, okay? Just because there wasn't that sign doesn't mean the covenant's invalid. We're still married, though she lost her ring, and, uh, but that was the... Uh, <coughs> I'm, just, I'm just messing with her. So, uh, but that was, that was the covenantal sign. You have this in the Bible, right? So with Noah, like Jeff talked about last week, there was this covenantal sign of a rainbow, that God takes his bow that the Bible says that he uses to smite people. Smiting is a good God word, by the way. Uh, smiting people. And what he does is he hangs it up in the sky, pointing back at himself to say, I've made peace with humanity. That's kind of the idea. That's a sign. Or in the New Testament, you have baptism. That's kind of seen as the covenantal sign for those who know Christ. Well, in the Old Testament, specifically with uh, Abraham, you have the covenantal sign of circumcision. Now, why is that the covenantal sign? Out of all the things God could have chosen... Why does circumcision, the removal of the foreskin from the male genitalia, why is that this covenantal sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Haven't you ever thought how weird that is? If I was Abraham and God came to me and he said, this is the covenantal sign, I'll be like, couldn't we just get matching shirts or something? Could we do something else? Why is that the sign? Three reasons. Three reasons that circumcision is this sign of the Abrahamic covenant. First of all, circumcision in the ancient Near East was a symbol of priestliness. It was a symbol of cleanliness, Okay. Most other nations didn't practice circumcision. There were a few, but most didn't. In Egypt, though, the priests would be circumcised, but that's it. So if you're an Egyptian, everyone who's male is not circumcised, but if you're a priest, because you're in the special status of holy, you would be circumcised. The foreskin was seen as unclean, and so you're clean. Well, Israel was meant to be a kingdom of priests. They're not just going to have priests. They're all going to be priests. And so that's kind of the idea. Why are we going to circumcise all the males? Well, because Israel is meant to be a kingdom of priests. These men will grow up and have wives, and they will, they will be a covering for their families. And so there's this idea of holiness and priestliness. If Israel's going to be a holy nation, then they need to take this mark that in the ancient world symbolized holiness. Number two, it was to make them, again, look different than other nations. It was to make them look different than other nations. I mentioned this a lot of times. So <clears throat> let me just say something mean. Every once in a while, there'll be somebody who is a medical doctor, who will write a book on dieting from the Old Testament. 
And what they'll say is, oh, wasn't God so wise in giving Israel like a, you know, an Old Testament Whole30 or CrossFit schedule or something so that they wouldn't eat these things? And they act as though that's the reason certain things are prescribed or not prescribed in the Old Testament. It has nothing to do with that. There are certain foods that are prescribed that we would consider unhealthy. There are other things that, uh, anyway. So that's not why God does that. The reason God gives these commands in the Old Testament is to make Israel look different than the other nations because they're special. To make them look different because they're special. Circumcision was meant to be a mark of that. One of the things that Jews talk about if you read Jewish literature from the first century, which I know you do on your Friday nights, um, is uh, how in the Roman world, when they would work out, they would work out naked. Right, you ever heard of a gymnasium? That comes from the Greek word gymnos, which means naked, because they'd work out naked. And if you're Jewish, it's different for you than for everybody else. And so people know, they make fun of you, there's persecution, etc. And so, uh, so it was meant to make you look different than the other nations. It was meant to make you look holy. Lastly, and this is the most important one, and Jeff talked about this in a sermon recently in Romans, the reason that circumcision is the mark of the Abrahamic covenant is because the promise of the Abrahamic covenant is through your descendants, all the nations will be blessed. So what you do is you take the mark and you put it on the organ through whom descendants would come, all right? through whom you would have descendants. That's the idea, that as a Jewish husband marries a Jewish wife and they have Jewish kids, it's always a reminder God's going to send a Savior. He's going to send a savior. He's going to send a savior. You have an eight-year-old or an eight-day-old boy. By the way, it's eight days old. If I've accidentally said eight-year-old boy for circumcision in any part of this lecture, that's not correct. Eight-day-old boy, and you go to circumcise your son, and you think to yourself, God's going to send a Messiah. That kid grows up. He has a family. He has an eight-year-old boy. No, dang it. I did it again. Eight-day-old boy. <laughs> you circumcise, and he thinks a Messiah is coming. The point being is, every time you would do the mark of circumcision, you would be reminded of, why is this the mark? Why, why is this the way that we enter into covenant? Oh, because the promise was descendants. The promise was that Abraham's going to have a great, 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 famous grandson who's going to fix what's broken in the world. That's the idea. That's why you have circumcision as the mark of the Abrahamic covenant. So in a stronger sense, circumcision is a Christian symbol. It looks forward to Christ. Don't tell your Jewish neighbors. The binding of Isaac. I want to read this <clears throat> quickly. This is a big text, okay? This is a big text. I want to read this. This is important for the uh, Abrahamic story. Let me tell you why. God promised that Abram slash Abraham would have descendants. After all this problem and stuff with Hagar and stuff with Sarah and she's not able to have, finally she has a kid. Finally she has a kid. So it looks like God's finally been faithful after all these years. The promise might happen. And then God says, kill him. Kill him. So let's see what goes on here. This is a lot. We're going to read this in its uh, entirety, though, because I think it's important for the Abrahamic story. <clears throat> Genesis 22, 1 through 19. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And tell him there as a, I'm sorry, let me pause real quick. Did he just call Isaac his only son? Doesn't Abraham have another son? What's his name? Okay. That language is important because what it means is he's the son of the promise, okay? He's the son of the promise. A lot of times when, uh, when the Bible, for example, talks about Jesus as being the firstborn over all creation, it doesn't mean Jesus is created. Jesus is eternal. It's this promise type of language. Your promised son. That's kind of the idea, 
Okay. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I, will, I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. Uh, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. By the way, that's meant, all of this is meant to be Christological references that you'll see later. He takes his promised son. He lays the wood on his shoulders as he's going to sacrifice him. Jesus carries his cross, etc. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and came, I'm sorry, and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. We don't have time to go into all of this today. You are meant to see so many Christological references in this passage. Why does Abraham take his promised son? Because God will give his promised son for the sins of the world. Why does he carry the wood up on his shoulders? Because Jesus is going to carry the cross. Whereas Abraham didn't have to give his son, God gives his son. Okay? So you're meant to see these different kinds of parallels. We don't have time to unpack all of that today, but I want you to see those things. I also want you to see this. Abraham was already justified by faith. The New Testament's very clear that when Abraham believed God, he was already justified by faith. But because he had true faith, he then walked in obedience. This is what the book of James will say, is that by offering up Isaac, he showed that he really did have faith in God. So you're saved by faith alone, but you're not saved by the kind of faith that is alone. You're saved by faith alone, but you're saved by faith that has legs on it. You're saved by faith that transforms your life. You're meant to see that as well. But what I really want you to see here is I want you to see the continuation of the promise. Because you've continued to show yourself faithful, I again swear to you, by myself, I can't swear by anything higher. God says, I swear to me, this is what's going to happen. Okay, This is what's going to happen. How was Abraham declared to be righteous in God's sight? By faith alone. Romans 4, 1 through 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Here is how Abraham is saved. You ready? God elects him. God shows up and says, I'm going to bless you, 
And Abraham simply believes God, even though it seems impossible. He's super old. His wife's super old. They're beyond childbearing years. And he simply believes God. And at that moment, God sees him as righteous. At that fiat moment, God sees him as 100% righteous, 100% justified, 100% perfect. And then after he's already in relationship with God, after he and God are already cool, now he walks out in obedience and being circumcised and in offering his son Isaac. How are we saved today? Through the electing grace of God, where he shows up and says, I have done these good things for you in Christ. And you don't have to earn it. You don't have to try to conjure up betterness or more faith or whatever. You simply stop calling God a liar and you say, I believe it. I accept your blessing. I accept that your son died for me. I'm in. At that moment, upon repentance and faith, he sees you as 100% righteous, 100% perfect. He has no wrath towards you. And then, because you're already cool with God, then you walk in righteousness and then you walk in obedience. The way that you're saved in the Old Testament, the way that you're saved in the New Testament has always been sola fide. It has always been by faith alone. That's the point that the Apostle Paul keeps making over and over and over again in Romans. He's saying, you Jews think you're saved just by being Jews. Let me go find the most Jewish person, Abraham. He's the father of the Jews. He is the, the, the Yoda of Judaism. How was he saved? By faith in a God who provided promises even before Abraham had done any works, even before he had done anything righteous. You're saved the same way. Now, we're almost out of time. So one more spicy thing to talk about, and then Jeff will come up and answer all the questions that I've just opened this can of worms on. Are you ready? Who are the true descendants of Abraham today? What does it mean to be linked to Abraham? If God promises that those who are linked to Abraham will be blessed, who are those that are truly linked to Abraham today? Is it ethnic Jews who are atheists or who do reject Jesus or something like that? Or is it those who have the faith of Abraham that are linked to the Messiah, that are linked to Abraham's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson? Let me just read you some text that are spicy, and then I'll just leave it hanging. You answer the question. Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay? So the way that you become heirs of the promises of Abraham is by having faith in Christ. Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those who of... I'm sorry. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Notice that. The New Testament is going to redefine a lot of Old Testament terms. The temple's actually Jesus. We're all actually priests. And those who have faith are sons of Abraham. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, meaning many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Galatians 3.21.9. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Romans 9.8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise, meaning the promise of faith that Abraham had are counted as offspring. So, am I saying, let me say it this way, the only way, if you're ethnically Jewish and you deny the Jewish Messiah, what you have done is you have cut yourself off from God. You have said, I don't want to be a part of Israel anymore. The most Jewish thing you can do is believe in Jesus. If you want to become a Jew, become a Christian. So if you're physically Jewish, but you're not spiritually Jewish, you're just this outside circle, but not this inside circle, you and God are not cool. What the New Testament is going to say is that the way that you become part of God's people, the way that you are linked to Abraham is by having the faith of Abraham. It can't just be physical descent. Do you know why? Because Ishmael comes from physical descent from Abraham. Because Esau comes from physical descent from Abraham. Because all kinds of unfaithful Jews 
come from the lineage of Abraham. It can't just be physical descent that means you're in. It has to be spiritual descent. Are you linked to the kind of faith that Abraham had? How was Abraham? Abraham was saved while he was a Gentile. He wasn't already Jewish. He's the father of Judaism. He was saved when he was a pagan. That's when God decides to redeem him. And so the point that Paul will make, and this is very controversial, and this would have been very controversial in Judaism in the first century, is to say, if you really want to be linked to the God of Israel, you believe in Jesus. If you don't have the faith of Abraham, it doesn't matter what your skin tone is. doesn't matter whether your last name is Goldstein or Rosenbaum. doesn't matter. You have to have the faith of Abraham if you want to be linked to Abraham. You have to trust in the one who is the true Israel, who is Christ. Lastly, a note about baptism. I'm not going to talk a lot about this because we're going to have a whole section on the new covenantal sign of baptism. In the Old Testament, who did you circumcise? So, so, so circumcision and baptism are seen as similar. Not exactly the same, but they are linked, for example, in Colossians. Baptism and circumcision. In the Old Testament, who did you circumcise? Yes. Well, it could be Gentiles as well if they converted to Judaism. But yeah, let me say it this way. In the Old Testament, you circumcise those who were linked to Abraham. Okay? You circumcise those that were linked to Abraham. In the Old Testament, the people you circumcised were those that were linked to Abraham. Everybody with me on that? Well, if in the New Covenant, the way that you're linked to Abraham is by faith, who then should you baptize? Those who have faith. Not the unbelieving, non-Jewish child of a believer. Again, remember, the son of a Jew is a Jew. The son of a Christian is not a Christian. But only those that have the faith of Abraham. This is why we practice believer's baptism at Parkway. It's because in the Old Testament, you had to be linked to Abraham to receive circumcision. In the New Covenant, you have to be linked to Abraham. So if you're a Gentile, non-believing child, you are not linked to Abraham doesn't mean God can't have mercy on a child that dies. I'm not getting into that. But what it does mean is you have to realize that you're either linked to Abraham through physical descent or through having the faith of Abraham. And what happens when it, with infant baptism is they have neither. You have neither of those. So that's all I want to say. Jeff, come up here and say smart things. <laughs>